Welcome to episode 47 of the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and usually my co-host Oliver Jones. This episode is with Scott Omalanek. He is the editor-in-chief at Inc. Magazine, the premier voice of America's entrepreneurs and business builders. Scott tells of how he went from garbage man in New York's garment district to star editor of GQ. Scott has a meticulous eye for trends and fascinating insight into the world he governs, so I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. So without further ado, we bring you Scott O'Malanek. I'm with Scott O'Malanek. Thanks for joining, Scott. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ed. It's great to have you on. I was given a brief by your comms department, which I guess wanted to focus on the recent events of the coronavirus story, um, as tiring and as exhausting as that is. But actually, you've got a wonderful backstory, and I felt that it would be kind of remiss of me not to go into that, because I think it's pretty, it's pretty exciting, it's pretty inspiring. And I've got peeled off your LinkedIn now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, from garbage disposal to, to GQ. Is that... Is that fair? And how did that story begin? Yeah, no, that actually is correct. I was working as a garbage man in uh, New York City's garment district, believe it or not. Um, I was putting myself through school uh, and and uh, somehow my first job out of school ended up uh, being at GQ magazine. Um, as a fact checker. So uh, I was not unfamiliar with the streets I ended up covering as a young journalist. I mean, I guess it's a great vantage point. I was in New York once in July. Um, I was really hot as well. And the garbage uh, was just oof, yeah. like it just it <laughs> filled every cavity of my, my brain. Um, so I have my respect for, for pushing through that. So the, the, the confession there is it was is it was it wasn't like you know, that kind of garbage gotcha. that we did. So actually, <laughs> like, we take an elevator up, get these big boxes of cloth, take an elevator back down, um, and dump them into the truck. Though we did go to a landfill, right? The world, at the time, the world's largest landfill, the Fresh oh, wow. Kills landfill, visible, I understand, from space at one time. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, I admire the people who do it, and I'm uh, glad I uh, moved on to a different career. Yeah, and then you, you showed some proficiency for, for editorial, didn't you? Because I know uh, you did history of art at college, is that right? Uh, yeah, I was an art history student. As, well, I was a, a, a failed, so I was a failed studio art student, I, and I had an art history professor who said, you know, you're, you're a better writer than you are a painter. Maybe you should consider that. So I finished up as art history and then went into journalism. Was that just him reading your, your art history briefs that you were producing alongside these, these fantastic pieces of work? Uh, less than fantastic pieces of work, <laughs> and, and yeah, and then reading my writing. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then I guess you you started you started really getting into your your career in editorial from there, I suppose. Yeah, and you know I have to say that the art background uh, at that time, you know, was was great uh, a great foundation foundation for writing about fashion, which is what uh, I did at GQ. At first, I was the the style editor of of, of GQ at that time, and. Um, it gave me a perspective that um, you know I, I would not have had if I had come out of a sports reporting background or something like that, right? Um, so, so I think it was a, an interesting and useful uh, career transition. And what started to shape that journey for you? Because New York seems to be the you know there's an enviable fashion scene there, and just going up through GQ and, and staying in that world would have some you know presumably been more than enough and, and plenty exciting enough. 
Yeah, you know, I um, it, it it was exciting, but it also is the kind of thing that uh, can get a little bit tiresome. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but at, at the time, you know, uh, believe it or not, you know, I I would. Uh, travel to Europe multiple times a year to London, to Paris, to Milan, um, to go through the fashion shows for a week or two at a time and come back to New York for those. And um, it it got, you know, to be tired. I know that sounds crazy, traveling on the company dime to the world's capitals. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I thought there were other things and I had the opportunity to leave GQ to go um, to Esquire, uh, w w which I did, uh, at, and at the time Esquire was not um, a solid uh, magazine. I suspect it's not anymore either. Um, but along the way, one of the things that the, the fashion background at GQ taught me, because that's just the world works, is, is how significant at that time that business was to a magazine's revenue picture. And so I had a, a business understanding that I took with me to the other editorial jobs I had and allowed me to become much more entrepreneurial uh, in my career, uh, taking advantage of other opportunities because I knew that, you know, if the money was coming in, well, you could do whatever you wanted uh, then. And so I sort of applied this understanding of the business to everything I, I, I did and used that uh, along the way through my entire career, basically. That's really interesting you say that. So a, a guy we interviewed here who started a, a podcasting tech company, I guess he saw the digital transition for Condé Nast. And obviously in the early days, um, the sort of idea of moving to digital was digital was almost heresy because it was just yeah. that you lost the integrity of the art and of the editorial prowess for this sort of cheaper medium. But, but clearly it's become part of this 360 vision and necessary vision to, to keep these things alive, right? Absolutely, and I don't even know if it's it will stay 360. But at the at, you know it, it it certainly print you know was an important component. What what I was was honest with my own consumption habits too, and and mm. and I saw that I was spending more and more time online. So uh, it seems like a long time ago now, and in fact it was a long time ago now. But you know I created Esquire's original web presence, and digital was fascinating to me. And again, maybe. In the same way, I moved out of fashion to, to Esquire to more general men's coverage. Um, you know, I had spent enough time in in print to become enamored of digital, and I, I did the same thing from digital to television. And then all of that actually came back together in a three sixty way at a brand uh, here uh, in the United States called uh, This Old House, which is a long running. A public television show about home renovation um, that also had a magazine and a website and, and books and licensed products and things like that. And so I had accidentally positioned myself uh, well for running uh, that brand. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I guess um, I heard in another interview you sort of saying that you, you had an entrepreneurial bent and as a family, you guys, you know, were, were entrepreneurial growing up. And then it makes me think that part of all of this is timing because growing up without the mediums that you believe in or where you think it's going or if the market's not timed yet, there's there's little you can do to actually realize those visions and, and deliver on them. You know, back in the early 2000s, there simply wasn't the um, technology wasn't widely available enough to make it as easy to do stuff like even like we're doing now. Um, and so yeah, did that, sure, did that sure. frustrate you in that transitionary period where you thought, you know, there's a real opportunity, it's coming. It's just about, you know, sitting on your surfboard waiting for the wave to, to come as it were. Well, it's fun. It's funny you say that because I, I've, I've just recently, uh, you know, I'm doing some Christmas shopping and I'm on Amazon, and I saw two technologies that I had wanted to use 
um, when I was running this old house, because, you know, uh, if you own a house, you know, it's all about um, spending money on its upkeep and furnishing it and, and, and stuff like that. And that's actually why I recommend to everyone nowadays just to rent in a brand new building and don't deal with old houses <laughs> at all. But um, uh, the uh, what I saw on Amazon, one, one was uh, sort of live stream home shopping. Uh, you know, online, um, the way it's been done on television for years is something that we tried to do and the technology wasn't there. The other piece of it was, uh, you know, visualizing products uh, in your home. And at that time, again, the technology wasn't there. So those are, are two things that pop into my head Im immediately that were entrepreneurial opportunities that, that weren't uh, able to be realized at the time. But I would say just as frustrating um, when you're not working for yourself is, is trying to align the folks who are around you or your bosses or whoever it is with the idea that there is a new opportunity. And it's a, a skill um, that I can't say that I've ever mastered, but I think it's one that's really important to success, right? Being able to tell your story well enough that you bring all of those people along with you rather than scratching their head saying, I don't know what you're talking about. But in, in a way, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely go on to sort of talk about Ink Magazine because, uh, you know, that's a really fascinating yeah. part of where your career is. But being at the intersection of a lot of moving pieces can actually almost dissuade you from some of the, the bullheaded hedonism that gets you to start a company, right? Because you're seeing so many things, you see so many different vantage points, so many people with big budgets doing stuff, you think, God, somebody's going to do it, you know. And sometimes the, the stuff we see with entrepreneurs is just this, unwavering self-belief that they don't you know, they don't question that they're not you know you at ink magazine probably see fantastic entrepreneurs all the time and think god you know do i do i have what it takes am i cut from the same cloth but yeah. you know maybe it is just just the unfortunate position you're in to see such high quality people that it becomes that you really if you're going to participate and play your hand you've got to hope you've kind of got pocket aces or something like that yeah, I think I think I think that's true. Um, but I also think that at each each point with each new technology, there's a moment where um, it's open to anybody. And if you're a smart enough person uh, and a curious enough person, you can come to understand it. Right. So mm. I didn't know anything about about websites before I decided, you know, I'm spending more time on websites. We need a website here at Esquire. Did not know a lot about television before I plunged into television. Um, and it was the curiosity that allowed me to continue uh, on on with that. I, I uh, we ultimately um, sold the This Old House brand to private equity and I uh, went out on my own as a consultant with the idea being that um you know, I had experienced all of these disruptions uh, to media, right? Because media was one of the uh, businesses that were disrupted first by technology um, and actually survived them, not just survived them, but positioned the business well enough um, for a successful sale, a profitable sale. Um, mm -hmm. And and so, uh, you know, f for me, I didn't really know the consulting world very well, uh, but I plunged in to learn it. Um, and, you know, that that's what I had done uh, next. So I think I think when you open yourself up, and this is, you know, this is something that I think entrepreneurs generally have, is a, is a lot of curiosity. And, and uh, when you're curious, um, and when you ask the right questions, you'll find that there are people out there who are willing to help you, answer questions for you, um, and even uh, want to help you succeed. Uh, and, and so, 
you know, t- to me, uh, whatever is aligned against you, uh, there's always a way around if, if you're sort of uh, clever enough or stubborn. Yeah, I think I think I agree. Actually, in some of the other interviews we've had recently, um, particularly one I can think of with a guy who did a car insurance tech company here. You know, car insurance is the is one of or insurance is one of the oldest products in the UK that we sort of wheel out all the time. We're so familiar with it, and, and he mm-hmm. came and reinvented it. But you know, he he had his own problem, and then he just asked a series of questions of why why is this not being done? Which in his case was sort of daily car insurance you could get on a phone and an app, and the actual answers he was getting were but not sufficient enough for him to believe that, that he couldn't have his say or create his own company. He's, he's actually been hugely successful since. So um, it is interesting. And how did, how did you find the consulting experience? Because I guess the the excitement there is you work for yourself and the frustration there is the scalability of it versus a sort of tech uh, scale yeah, like some people have. Right, right. It's not a it's not a scalable business un- unless you're someone who goes on to write some books and get on the speaking circuit and all of that stuff. I loved it. However, I loved the new challenge every day. I loved, uh, you know, every business's success is is different, but so many businesses have the same problems mm. at the bottom and being able to help folks solve those. The thing uh, that did not work for me is that I, I was not savvy about what businesses I would work with. So I worked with businesses that were interesting to me, not mm-hmm. necessarily businesses that could pay me. And then I was an even worse bill collector, which is something that I think lots of entrepreneurs have to face at some point, right? They're, they're, uh, or, 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 you know, single sole proprietors or, or whatever, where, you know, you're also the bill collector in addition to the, you know, in addition to the product. And that's not pleasant, <laughs> right? It's just not yeah. pleasant. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy as well because um, it's not something you're taught at school. And I remember going into the world of business and thinking, great, I've arrived. This is where my dad used to come home from work every day. I've got my education. You go out there and you do your work and then you send your invoice. And doesn't get paid. Exactly. And then suddenly you get into this weird game of, of basically what has to be leveraged at the end of the day or just a, a kind of, I don't know, it's, it's forced into this situation where a good relationship has to become tense. And then if somebody's really skilled at sort of, dementing you and making you feel like it's your fault then you naturally don't want to have that conflict with them yet you sort of just have to pull down the pull down the iron curtain and say well enough's enough and and you've got to pay me for the services but it's is extraordinarily tough and i can see why people who've got big brands behind them you know you can steamroller in with the goldman sachs you know business card or whatever but for yeah independent operators it's tough it's 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 a hard thing to do to work for yourself. You know, it's it's incredibly liberating, but it's also comes with a lot of uh, difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. And how did that migrate then into into, I guess, the current role? And you've done plenty of other things um, along the side as well. Um, yeah, you know, I so I left. I, I was I was working with interesting businesses. Um, I was uh, also teaching at university and and teaching uh, what started out as uh, marketing because I think, you know, essentially um, that's what I did as an editor-in-chief of of magazines was I was the head marketer for them, uh, what they represented. So I, and, and of course I interacted in media, you interact with the consumer and with an advertiser. So I was teaching a marketing course and that evolved into, you know, a, the dean thinking, you know, you have had this entrepreneurial background, even though it's in big 
companies. Um, so do you think you could teach this course in entrepreneurship? And so I started doing that, wrote a couple of stories for Fast Company, which is Inc.'s sister publication, mm-hmm. um, uh, about uh, about the topic of entrepreneurship. And uh, uh, someone there saw them and knew my background and said, you know, we have this opening at Inc. Maybe we should see uh, if he wants to um, come work for us. Uh, and I didn't, <laughs> believe it or not, not at first. I was, I, I was tired of, of media until I came to understand who the Inc. audience was. And this is something gotcha. that's valuable for any brand anywhere, it, is that when you have an audience that is loyal to the brand, who actually thinks it's made a difference in their lives, um, uh, you know, that's, that's gold, right? And that's so incredibly valuable. And that turned out to be the case with Inc. and its current audience. Um, and, and to be able to work with folks like that and help and have them participate in the ongoing evolution of a brand, the consumer participate in an ongoing evolution of the brand is just an awesome thing. That's really exciting. Um, and that's what sort of uh, flipped the switch for me was, was the audience and, and, and who they were. Yeah, because in preparation for this, I mean, I was I was really excited. I know Inc. I've I've seen it on the shelves. It has this sort of aspirational quality to it. And and in the UK, with you know, put no finer point on it, the US still excites us as an entrepreneurial community. It seems to be you know, it is the forerunner. And so I've always associated it with this sort of um, really aspirational, uplifting educational quality to it. And I sort of explained to some friends, and they were like, I don't know Inc. And then you think you'll know it from the front cover immediately. And as soon as I show them that, they're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they kind of sort of, they conflate it slightly with Forbes, but there is a difference. So mm-hmm. what would be, I guess, the, yeah. the tagline for how you describe Inc. Magazine as it sort of exists today? You know, we think about, so we say magazine, but really we we, we mean the whole brand. And, and Inc.'s mission, its purpose, its reason for being is to support uh, the uh, American entrepreneur, the American small business owner, uh, the founder. Um, and, and that has traditionally been in... Uh, providing inspirational stories, providing recognition, and providing some level of uh, information or instruction through content. Um, And we still do that. Uh, But increasingly, um, you know, we find ourselves seeing other opportunities and finding other lines of of business uh, to participate in. So, uh, you know, out of the recognition, recognizing entrepreneurs, uh, the Inc. 5000 was launched, which recognizes the 5,000 fastest growing private companies in the country. Um, and that became an event and an incredibly successful event for us. Um, and selling the licensing or the badging uh, around that is another line of business. And it sort of rolls out from there, right? So you see these opportunities. Now we're looking even farther forward, knowing that we support the entrepreneur, that we're crucial to their success. What other products can we offer that we know people will trust us to do right by offering um, uh, that would make sense? So does Inc. become, um, you know, some sort of, say, SaaS marketplace, right? Most small businesses don't know anything about AI or blockchain or all of these technologies we're all told are so important. How do we mediate that relationship for people? Is there an opportunity there? So I think Inc. has done well by sticking to this core mission of supporting the entrepreneur. And now how we do that 
will change over time. And one day there might not be a magazine at all, right? As we mm. lose more and more touch with print, but that's okay because we'll still be essentially in that mission of supporting the entrepreneur. That's that's fascinating seeing your role as the, I guess, the universal interconnector. Um, you know, we appreciate the roles of people who have these vantage points, who, as you say, if, if you are stuck in, I don't know, wherever, Kentucky in, in America, um, your network and understanding of who they should be dealing with or the technologies they should be dealing with far exceeds any one individual component of this sort of entrepreneurial readership. And therefore, it's you've almost kind of formed like a collective intelligence at some point where you can start to, to share the value that is the media entity that is Inc. for the benefit of everybody who wants to be able to exercise that right to start a small business, which is incredibly powerful. Yeah, and, and it's not so different from, you know, telling that story of someone's success in print and letting there be that kernel of information that someone can take away and apply to their own business or their own life. It's just that at an entirely different level, you know, mm. um, it, it's understanding what your purpose is and your uh, execution on that purpose might be different over time. Um, and, and I think smart businesses understand that and that's how they evolve and go on being useful, um, whereas others get stuck in the rut and think they should only be one thing. And then, you know, the consumer moves on, the marketplace moves on, and they're stuck there still making, you know, typewriters or buggy whips or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Well, this is the scary thing. And, and I guess I mean, I'm only 33, but the generation of entrepreneurs I feel like I'm part of are feel less like small business owners and more like people who want the title of entrepreneur and therefore it kind of is also conflated with the idea of the need to create these these unicorns or venture-backed yeah. business it's not about small business anymore it's about being the the tech billionaire or something and and actually i think those stories or, or that narrative is dangerous because as you've just said some businesses exist and they need to evolve or maybe their market size was only ever going to be i don't know seven or eight figures, but that's not to be shunned. I mean, that's an incredible achievement no, in itself. Absolutely. And incredibly important to the communities they exist in and to particular customers, right? I think it's unfortunate or an unfortunate narrative has developed around the unicorns and, and the way VCs uh, distribute money in, in, in a way that I think, you know, most of us would feel if it were our own money, wasn't very intelligent. Um, you know, so placing so many bets indiscriminately in the hopes of wanting and one of them paying off large forces you into these big scalable software driven businesses and i think one of the things that's interesting here in the states right now is uh, alternative investment vehicles so for example taking what uh, kickstarter or gofundme uh is and uh, are the the government has started to allow crowdsourcing yes crowdfunding yeah. i'm sorry yes crowd, crowd no, crowdsource funding and and you know that has the potential to allow all sorts of people to create businesses that are very worthwhile that would never get attention um, before and and that that excites me because you know there are not everyone went to stanford or or or, or caltech or mit and they're not going to have access to andreessen horowitz or or, mm. or whoever it is who's making the big investment um and lots of people have the opportunity to create viable businesses and even you know, intergenerational wealth, which is a significant thing right now, particularly in the United States around the discussion of uh, 
equitability and, and race and things like that. And so if someone has a good idea now, that idea can be recognized and it doesn't have to be huge and can still be a success. And it's just a success on a smaller scale. I think it's a much more interesting tapestry that, that, that we'll have um, as a business community when, when that's fully realized. I, I am inclined to agree with you. Um, we actually we suffered here more than I think even when I when I went to New York in the UK of the sort of high street proliferation of chains where um, uh, a restaurant or shop will grow, PE will scale it to you know every city it can in the UK, and then before you know it, every high street starts to look the same. We've lost the shop owners that you know. We've lost that sense of community and. Actually, what's been interesting, I mean, probably now is a timely sort of point to get onto how it's going to change in the face of coronavirus. Is we went around then looking of you know who do you want to put money into the hat, the, whose pockets do you want to put your money into to kind of keep retail alive? And well, it's definitely not the the big chains here. I mean, I'd much rather try and prop up the local shopkeepers, but a lot of them have been sure. bullied out of the high street by by egregious uh, rental prices. Right. And and so that may change, right? Uh, we might see rents drop significantly given mm. w- what's happened. But I think, you know, all of us, th- we have an obligation to, to ask ourselves what sort of world do we want to uh, live in? Um, and, and not just right now, but post-pandemic, right? And, and is that one that's dominated by by big chains, uh, you, you know, uh, Amazon and Tesco or whatever it, it is, or, or do we want to uh, patronize smaller shops and 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 have choice and and not uh, you know just you know well there's convenience in a curbside drop off or a stoop you know drop off on the front steps of 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 products. There's also something special about having a vibrant downtown and a vibrant mm. high street and and a, and a place that's not empty and you know. Uh, has has a higher crime rate because it's empty. Um, you know, the, these are all uh, concerns, and I think they're they're relevant and something we should all think about when we you know spend our dollars. Um, yeah, and I think there is a desire or a, a yearning for some kind of experience. Um, it's you know, I think if you play you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? And it's if you lowball the customer, strip out all the joy, and make it just about efficiency, then all roads will point to Amazon. So if you're a shop that's been basically trying to run you know, tight margins and, and basically stack the shelves with bric-a-brac and, and nothing, there's no joy to that experience. And it's very difficult to then maintain any kind of loyalty. I mean, the most absurd thing that happened here was when we got into this really strange thing where I'd be downloading apps to get loyalty points and push offers from my local um, shopkeepers who then could get the marketing data. And it's like, this is a very strange way to just go in a loop around to what would have been solved by a human connection. You know, it would have been nice just to talk. I, I speak to, um, there's a Lebanese bakery down the street and, you know, he just chucks in a free, a free extra into my bag when I turn up a few times. It's like, that's value, right? You yeah. don't need to yeah. try and digitize everything. I, I don't think so. I, you know, and I think, you know, that's a, it's an important thing to think about is that the, Technology, you know, digital tools are are in the end just tools and we can choose to use them. um, We can use them in in different ways or we can choose not to use them. That that is possible for us. We have that 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 choice and not everything needs a digital uh, solution, Um, particularly when you're right. I mean, I I think, you know, I I actually. 
am terrified of the day uh, where everything just comes to my door at the tap of an app. You know, some of that's, I, I love that convenience when it's possible. I also love bumping into my neighbors at, at you know, the pub when I'm there around the corner, um, who I haven't seen in a while and not to do that, you know, or to go out for a meal and not run into somebody or just, mm. you know, have my dinner out of a tin instead of, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, on a, on a plate is, is there's something lost in that. I think, I think the efficiency, um, you're right, robs us of a lot of human, uh, connection. The flip side of this is that I see a lot of businesses now trying to use technology to allow them to be more human. And, mm. and we'll see if that ultimately works or not. Um, but the idea of allowing us to connect with people in an honest way, um, a less transactional way, uh, a more human way, if the technology you know takes away the drudgery and allows for more humanity as opposed to just more efficiency and more savings, say, um, you know, that, that could be special. But that's, again, a choice we have to make. Well, and you do, you start, I've noticed you started to see that in the B2B landscape, actually, most is where um, there's this hybridization between a tech, well, to, to, to actually between a traditional service supplier and a tech solution. So we have it here with um, legal tech, actually, the stuff that is re reproducible or repeatable as far as the legal terminology is now being automated so the lawyer can spend a bit more time actually just finessing it on the end and then build that relationship which mm -hmm. you i guess you see in other areas as well is that it takes out the the you know me just filling in a in the data or whatever it might be and actually working on that human component of, of hopefully building trust and and uh, more depth that's right and that you know then then it comes down to you know, do the bit, how venal are the business owners and are they going to use that, you know, that saved time to cut staff or are they going to use that saved time to actually develop deeper relationships with the client, which actually might in the end be the greater payoff, right? There's a short-term gain of cutting staff, but there's the longer-term gain, a light, the, the quote lifetime value, the LTV mm. uh, of, of a consumer that a good relationship provides. So my, my hope is people see that. You know, and, and see see the non-transactional relationship building opportunities that are possible because of technology. But so in all of this, Scott, like how on earth as the, the editor-in-chief of Inc. magazine, do you possibly cover the interests of America, American small business within this one media landscape? I mean, it's such a huge job. And even just hearing you talk about the environment in New York, and we, we're sort of, I guess we're connecting on a, a people who live in cities or the, the city environment, but how do you create this publication or this media entity that can, can make everybody feel welcome, no matter where they come in the States and what their business is? So, uh, you know, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but all businesses, you know, all businesses are different. Um, mm. They all tend to have the same problems, uh, no matter what they do or how, right? So it's, um, uh, do I have a product market fit? How do mm. I get to the consumer? How do I market to the consumer? How do I deal with my competition? How do I deal with the businesses that actually aren't my direct competitors, but are still stealing people from me, right? So you mentioned the in, in insurance companies before. It's not one insurance company stealing from another. It's uh, an insure tech company stealing from a traditional insurance company now, right? Um, it's in the media losing uh, people's time to, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, mobile games, say, uh, or, mm. or YouTube videos or, or what have you as much as, as any other kind of business content, right? Um, so, so I think there are lots of common problems, particularly on the entrepreneurial journey. There's a lot of uh, loneliness. Um, only you understand what you're going through. But in fact, it's not just you. It's the uh, man or woman down the street who's doing the same thing. And so there's a point of connection uh, there. There's the, you know, concern about funding and you have or making payroll and you have that concern no matter what kind of business you are. So it turns out that there are a lot of uh, commonalities in businesses, even though they're very diverse and even though they're very regionally uh, diverse. And uh, they seem to all have, you know, other problems like no one can find the staff that they really want and team is valuable. So how do you build the best team and then keep them happy? We're in a place right now where, you know, uh, I think it would benefit most leadership would would almost be more benefited uh, from having a, a social worker's degree or a psychiatrist or a psychologist's mm. degree as an MBA, right? Uh, just given where we are as a uh, culture now. Um, so those problems are all fairly uh, consistent and, and universal. And th that gives us uh, a point of contact with our consumer. Everyone wants to be recognized for the success they've had. That gives us a point of yeah. contact. So, you know, there it, it is it is a remarkably diverse uh, um, marketplace in some respects, but there are a lot of common commonalities too. Well, and as you say, there's, there's plenty of those to get behind before you worry about running out of content. Um, I assume that means you probably try and avoid political hot potatoes or, or media casting in that avenue? Yeah, you know, it, it's hard, right? Because our our audience is as diverse politically as as the you know landscape is at large, um, and and yet increasingly, um, and what's interesting to me is is that, and, and maybe we're over a hump a little bit in that respect, is that while we do tend not to be political, people across the political spectrum have started to recognize certain things. Um, and, and one of those is, is for example, uh, you know, not everyone still might agree on whether or not we have a threat uh, from from global warming, but they might agree on the mm. fact that companies need to give back something to the community. So we're seeing commonalities there. And in fact, we just launched a new program to, to complement the Inc. 5000, which recognizes the 5000 fastest growing in revenue businesses, something called the Best in Business Awards. And for us, the Best in mm. Business Awards were what what impact are you making that has nothing to do with the P&L, right? So what, what are you so cool. doing uh, with the with your client, with your consumer, within the community that is making a difference, and there have been some remarkable uh, stories. You know, here in in the United States, we have um, a, a gender problem in the boardroom where um, men are you know far out outrepresent. Uh, women on on boards and in in fact in publicly traded companies I think there are only you know literally a handful of of women CEOs uh, but we have one company um, called Uncle Nearest which is a, a liquor company Uncle Nearest is actually a uh, the name of a slave who taught Jack Daniels how to become a distiller uh, his his family and an entrepreneur have relaunched a brand uh, named after him they decided that the board. Um, would be uh, all female. 
uh, right off the start. And that's remarkable, you know, that, and that's an impact. They are now uh, an example for other people. And that's highly unusual, by the way, in, mm. in the, the distillery world, right? Uh, which is sort of a, a, good, a good old boys kind of place. And their workforce mm. at large represents the population at large. They've made an effort to do that. So all, you know, there, there are companies that are doing things regardless of their politics that are, are interesting, you know, um, a fairly conservative uh, old school company that um, at the beginning of the pandemic kept its, uh, with agreement, uh, kept 80 workers in 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 the manufacturing facility who bunked down in the manufacturing facility so that they could work 12 hour shifts for a month uh, to produce enough personal protective equipment uh, for hospitals at that time. Um, That's a remarkably generous thing for them to have done. And, you know, they connected folks, they brought in, you know, extra broadband connections and things like that. So the workers could, you know, connect with their families who are outside of the plant, obviously. Um, But seeing things like that give me actually great hope that regardless of of politics, businesses are increasingly seeing the need to be, uh, you know, as purposeful uh, as they are profit-driven. I am, I am so with you with that because I think in solving a common problem, we can or we have the opportunity to come together in a way that, as you said, as soon as somebody would have heard those workers staying in to create PPE, people would have then thought, "Oh, should we leave thermos flasks out for them with hot drinks or, or something?" And people, it's like once there's a flag in the sand, then people can have an opportunity to show what they're really made of, and they could be trusted to make a difference. But what's so good here is that. If your magazine did not create that presence, then it, it's not that it doesn't carry a value. There's a, we already know there's a huge value in terms of creating impact, but it's just another way people can can start to attribute value to something that's not necessarily being economically um, factored incorrectly yet. And, and therefore, yeah. I also think with the next generation of entrepreneurs who grow up knowing no different than to value these things, it'll be already baked into their minds and all the companies that they start to produce because there is... There is, to my way of thinking, a philosophy of entrepreneurship and where the envy is and where the status is, is to a degree sometimes where you see the migration of ideas go and and talent. Yeah. And, you know, there's the flip side of this, too. Right here in the United States, the founder of of Zappos, Tony Shea, uh, just just died, you know, as the the result of a fire that sort of um, came about because of some addiction problems, right? So there, there is a flip side to, you know, ch- ch- chasing um, the big dream and, and having it be a little bit hollow in, in the end. But I, I think you're right. Increasingly, uh, younger entrepreneurs are seeing the importance of this, baking it into their plan from the start and knowing that they're not going to get off the ground unless they have that because consumers are increasingly not going to pay attention to them. Um, with respect to the Best in Business Awards, what was exciting for me is that we had thousands of people apply to it, um, uh, th- thousands of businesses apply to it, uh, and, and people you know, would email me uh, or reach out on LinkedIn or whatever and say, you know, I, I, I applied and we didn't make it and we're doing this, you know, and they, mm. they rattle off some good work that they're doing in the community, building a playground, funding STEM education at schools or something like that. And, and my response was, I, I think that is absolutely terrific. And I'm so happy you're doing that. Um, and you continue, you should continue to do that. But um, there are other folks out there doing this much more. 
right? So we we had so many people doing truly remarkable uh, things, finding, you know, uh, um, for example, an egg farm that, that, that found a way to avoid the, the culling of male chickens, that the chicks that happen in, in, you know, looking for the production of eggs, producing them in an organic way, pasture related, and then ultimately doing all of that, which has a huge sort of, you know, impact on the environment. Um, and at the same time, giving away millions and millions of eggs at food banks uh, because people were out of uh, during COVID, right? So those out of work during COVID. So those two things together, right? The baked in aspect of, of their sort of uh, environmental concerns around factory farming and how they're going to be different. Um, and then, you know, the, the philanthropy at the same time. There, there's so much of that going on. And, and to me, that's so encouraging and, 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 and such a reason to be optimistic. I mean, it's it's so nice to hear you optimistic about the future. I mean, have you guys, are you in a position to collect data? I mean, the list would be data, but are you in a position to collect data on how small business is affected, let's say how the last year's been and how or what signs of recovery might look like as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think, you know, what we see is that, um, and, and much much like th- the um the impact of COVID itself, it's very unevenly distributed, right? So there are communities uh, of people who are suffering and there are businesses and categories of businesses that are suffering far more significantly than others. And and obviously hospitality industries and service businesses are, are, are suffering profoundly. And, and I think there are real questions about um, how they will recover. In talking to our data scientist, um, I'm mindful, or and he's mindful, of what happened after the the you know the Spanish uh, influenza epidemic in 1918, 1919, um, that gave birth to the Roaring Twenties, which was a remarkably uh, a prosperous and socially experimental time. And so, mm. one question is: Is that you know, in in his mind, that's going to happen uh, again? In his mind, cities. Um, will not be left hollow. People will return to them. You know, we've spent tens of thousands of years as social creatures. We're not going to abandon that suddenly. Um, and certainly we know that the digital experience does not feel the same, right, um, as as the, the face-to-face experience. So I think we've seen businesses succeed wildly because of COVID and the ability mm. to pivot, the ability of their founders to be resilient, um, to, to take advantage of... Uh, prevailing trends to take their product that was meant for one thing that was no longer of use and retool it for something else that was of use. I'm reminded of someone who um, uh, had uh, automobile advertising, car dealership advertising technology for, for, for the web and how uh, people here stopped buying cars uh, when 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 COVID came, um, and she saw the opportunity. Well, you know this technology works really well for cars, and people are spending more online now than ever. There's no reason we can't apply this to industries outside of cars. That's just where her personal background was, right? So suddenly mm. they've had profound growth in in, the, in that subtle shift of just t- tapping a new market. And we've seen lots and lots of companies that have succeeded in that way. And then those others, and they tend to be smaller, they tend to be less well capitalized, um, they tend to be more traditional, uh, a florist, a tailor, a restaurant, um, 
uh, you know, a, a, a bar or pub or tavern, um, clearly they're, they're, they're suffering uh, more and their road back might be quite difficult. And I think there's an understanding, sadly, that many of them just won't be because they're not in a position to, you know, weather a second lockdown or, uh, you know, are already so far in arrears uh, to their to the mm. creditors that they'll they'll never make it up. What um what economic levies are in place in America at the moment to try and stimulate, if anything, these businesses? Because we have um, an ongoing furlough scheme where people are paid eighty percent of their their wage up to two thousand five hundred pounds per month till March next year, which obviously is is helping a lot. But you know what can these small businesses rely on? I think you know here in the states we've seen sadly a very erratic, ill-conceived, and ultimately, uh, you know, one could argue um, uh, useless response by the government. That's not to say that a lot of money wasn't spent, uh, but not necessarily Mm. spent um, in in the right ways. We've seen some cities suspend, you know, uh, eviction for non-payment of of rent. Others haven't. So the the there there's not been, to my mind, a, a coherent uh, national response. Uh, the payroll protection program and other big stimulus bills uh, that were passed did not necessarily go to the people who needed them most, um, as is often the case. So so I think there's a mm-hmm. lot for. Um, I think there's a lot for small businesses in particular to be unhappy about and critical of the government uh, of here. Uh, um, you know, unemployment benefits were extended, but of course they they ran out and they helped people for a time, but then then they didn't. Um, the the payroll protection program as often as not helped larger businesses than the ones that didn't need it and and smaller ones. Uh, struggled to get the money from the lenders. So uh, I, I can't say that, um, you know, the government response here, m- much much like the health advice uh, itself, um, was one to, to admire. So I guess mo- moving on to one of my big questions, because we, we are focusing on small businesses, and that is one of the exciting sort of lifeblood, it's part of the exciting lifeblood of America. But what's your opinion on what's happening with the giant tech companies and as they move forward how it's incentivized that they leave enough room for for incumbents to come along or or do you think they they are where they should be i mean what do you have an opinion on that you know i i think it's uh, i i i have personal opinions and i have ones that i understand are appropriate professionally um mm. I, I i think each one i feel a little differently about you know ultimately and, and so, sort of the the business person in me thinks you know uh, businesses uh, like amazon and google are as successful as they are because they've um uh filled such a consumer need you know i am as responsible for Amazon's success as anybody, because I mm-hmm. use Amazon all the time, right? So, you know, is Jeff Bezos the bad guy, or is it me and you and anyone else who orders from Amazon? Because that's that's what we've done. The question about, you know, there are a couple of different questions. I think one is sort of the the disinformation influence that platforms like Facebook and Twitter might have and what that means. And that's very troubling to me. Um, 
the sort of near monopoly on advertising dollars that have crushed businesses like the industry I'm in media uh, that, mm. that Google has. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, the R&D dollars these companies are able to spend because of their size is is one of the things that's helped keeping the West um, ahead of the game, right? Where, where for example, with China, we had there's an enormous government subsidy for R&D. Here, it's large companies. If you break all of those companies up, do they have the same capacity to spend on new technology as they do? Is that where we immediately lose the AI race that everyone is concerned with? So I think it's a, a thorny and complicated issue. The way I have resolved it myself is there are certain uh, social media platforms I do not use because I, mm -hmm. I find them, uh, you know, morally questionable. Um, I have turned down the opportunity to interview some of their executives because I question wow. whether they would be honest with me if they can't be honest with Congress, for example. Um, I, mm. uh, well, I can give you their I, party lines. They've got the same <laughs> thing every time. <laughs> right. Um, but, th but then when it comes to Amazon, like I have to make decisions all the time about, you know, am I going to order my groceries from there or, today or am I going to go around the corner uh, and put my mask on and go around the corner to, to, to get them? Mm. And, and there I think it, it's more of a case by case basis. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not able to, you know, wear a, a, a saint's mantle here at all. Um, and I think each of those these cases is, is, is quite, you know, different. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, it's us who have made these companies what they are. They've had smart founders, but it's the consumers, uh, whether that is a consumer of, of, of a physical product or a consumer of, of the, the, the equity market, stock market, who, is, who has made the, the founders wealthy, who have made uh, the company successful. I would ask that they find ways to give back in the way we've seen the best in business companies give back. And that's something that I don't think, you know, as a relative percentage to their revenue um, is something they're doing uh, yet. Right? They could do more there. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, everybody's been talking about, um, oh God, I forgot the, net, the name of the Netflix documentary, which was talking about the attention economy. But the idea yeah. that, you know, from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you go to sleep, potentially, billions of hours are being consumed and but that I mean that you're right there is a two two prong conversation there which is we have to have some personal agency to be able to make our own decisions even if those companies are trying to create an addictive product we we do prop it up they can't exist in an echo chamber it's just obviously there's some very bright people working very hard to maintain that influence and as you say I'm, I'm hoping that the initial game of bringing everything together has been done um, and that, that that more concern and more um, pushback of what we expect our attention and how we expect our attention to be spent will come. But another point you touched on that was really interesting is whether we like it or not, we are in a sort of global arms race towards AI and future technologies and space and all these other things. And, you know, entrepreneurialism often benefits from move fast and, and break often and if we regulate and slow down everything too much, then yeah, maybe there are other nations that will, will simply just do it. You know, I, I so one thing I would say is that yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, one thing I would say is that that regulation is not 
in and of itself to me a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because with every every regulation that comes along, um, there is the opportunity for someone to step in and find a business that services the issues around that regulation, right? And that mm. that that might be, you know, we can trace back, you know. Uh, that from a, a coal-driven economy to one now in, in most Western nations that is just as, uh, you know, where, where we find places like in, in Germany where where there's an excess of, of uh, you know, um, zero carbon energy, for example, in any given moment here, solar is now less expensive than than coal, um, certainly less expensive than nuclear. Uh, mm. so, so, you know, whatever regulations were wrapped around coal at one point gave life to these other alternative energy businesses that are now, uh, more cost effective than, than, than coal is. Right. So, 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 so regulation is not in and of itself bad. The, the question does become, you know, what is an even playing field? And when you're dealing with, uh, you know, international uh, espionage, corporate espionage for IP, right? Which we are. Um, when mm. you're dealing with billions of dollars spent on research, uh, which we are. Um, when when you're dealing with varying levels of uh, ethics when it comes to ex the experimentation with these things, um, then it becomes a much stickier conversation, right? Um, and 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 the question is 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 that good or bad? I think you know I think uh, in the traditional definition of uh, Western liberal democracy, which you, you know uh, I think you know began in the Enlightenment, sort of accelerated with a lot of uh, English colonial powers stepping out, uh, you know, colonial uh, holdings stepping out on their own. And, and that we see so successfully, say, in Scandinavian countries now, um, you know, they, we've flourished as a species because of them. As a mm. society, we've flourished. Um, there's still great inequality, but it's certainly not like it was. There are advances that are remarkable. I think, I think, we have to get back to a place and sort of what we've talked about all along where there's more humanity in business where sort of the the, the capitalism is more enlightened and more people driven than dollar driven where it's not a quarter to quarter uh you know uh wall street uh play or or what the 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 FTSE sa says but what mm. what 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 matters more than that, right? Um, we have somehow, you know, forgotten the people in that equation at big companies. And I think if we can get back to there, you know, it's still an okay place, you know, you know, capitalism is still an okay place to be. Being an entrepreneur and making money is still okay. The question is, are you just keeping it for yourself for no reason? Or are you mm. bringing other people along with you, right? And I think we have a, you know, to me, we have a moral and ethical obligation to bring other people along with us. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of criticism, unfairly so, on America in in light of, I mean, I guess particularly the last four years. And I still think the environment that has been fostered in the US has created what, the greatest world economy that's ever existed, and some of the most amazing businesses and ideas that have, have unquestionably pulled us forward, you know, into the into the future. I mean. Um, 
There, there was an interesting article. I'm not going to name the publication because I, I feel um, something wrong about naming another publication while speaking to you. But they were interviewing Elon Musk, and he um, he's got some interesting viewpoints at the moment. I mean, he always has viewpoints. <laughs> but he was talking about his move from California and saying that you know maybe California's rested on its laurels too much as the place to go for business and sort of had put Texas on the map. And he was also quite critical, again, as a sort of – common thread here of MBA culture within the sort of big company execs and and again using dollars as the benchmark rather than delighting customers or thinking about how you can make an experience that really matters and a product that really matters now you know maybe he's got um, the the benefit of being able to talk from a position where he's been successful and didn't fail in his mission um, to do that, but it was interesting, and I particularly think this move from California to prioritizing other states in the states is fascinating to me, like Austin, Texas, and these other areas that are, are emerging. Um, so, do you have a viewpoint on on how America may reshift other areas that may see sort of exciting developments and growth? Um, in yeah, I, I I would say that I think Elon Musk's move to Texas is a little more self serving than just mm-hmm. sort of spreading. Uh, the wealth around Texas is fairly well known for its lack of business regulation. Occasionally, okay. that results in you know chemical plants exploding and 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 stuff like that. So so <laughs> okay. that's quite different from California in that respect. Um, yeah. And 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 so I you know I'm not going to uh, say I can match wits with Elon Musk, but I would just I I think the the point is that yes there needs to um, be a, a be a spreading of of entrepreneurship and it needs to happen other places. Austin is a really interesting place. You know, New York and San Francisco in particular, much like, you know, London um, has had a, 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 a stranglehold on entrepreneurship. I think we are better off with more diversity in entrepreneurship and that be it's geographical diversity. It's giving people who, uh, you know, live in the equivalent of, of uh, I know I you know I I don't know Birmingham or Cleveland mm. or places like that or Detroit uh, new opportunities as well right because those folks aren't 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 going away and w- the industries they used to work in aren't coming back is there opportunities uh, that can be created for them and in, in in moving out of that monolithic culture I do agree with him on this point where you know there are many ways to get to success and they don't all have to follow the same playbook. They don't all have to follow the same VC startup deck requirement. Um, and, and, and you don't have to have gone, uh, to Stanford or, or worked at uh, Google or Facebook and left to start a company to, to be successful. I think there is tremendous opportunity. And in that diversity, uh, of opportunity, there's always more interesting things and more interesting things lead to more strength. So my hope is, and we're actually working on a story right now about bringing entrepreneurship to middle America in a way that, you know, bringing technology entrepreneurship to America in a way that it hasn't existed before. And I think that that is exciting. And that mm. does portend for a more interesting future and maybe one where we get away from, as we've talked about, just these large companies that sort of swallow everything around them, right? They're, they're black holes, basically. Um, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how that happens and how quickly that happens. Well, it's also very interesting as well, because if you if you create what is essentially a sort of techno state, and you are the the creator of it, 
you can see how the frustrated masses in the center of the country feel that these things are being created that they're not consulted on. Then they spread and then they're the sort of adapted de facto use case or platform. And so all the conversations spread to to either you know either coast. And so if somebody in the in the the Midwest or anybody creates one of these tech giants themselves and it sort of just it just pulls the conversation into a sort of slightly more dynamic, sustainable, inclusive place. And also I guess it garners the respect of the people living in the cities that go, oh my God, one of our, you know, Decacorn companies has come out of Central America. And you say, well, yeah. that's great. You know, <laughs> I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and there are, you know, there are spots to look at that, you know, that are exciting. Kansas City, for example, is one, one place that's starting to, to have a little traction. Um, uh, there's a, there's a woman, a former Microsoft executive who has bought um, a chunk of uh, downtown Jackson, Mississippi. So Mississippi, one of, you know, the poorest and least educated states. And she's bought a chunk of the downtown there to, to start a tech driven, uh, opportunity for new business. And it will be interesting to see how that happens because then instead of young people fleeing the state and, and sort of the, you know, it, it's trajectory snowballing uh, to the point of almost avalanche, uh, it, it will, you know, will, will this bring life back to it? Will Jackson suddenly become in, you know, the in Austin, two states farther east. That's interesting to mm. see, and it's exciting that people are taking that opportunity. And so, with a view on this and your role in all of it, personally and and I guess professionally within the scope of Inc. and yourself, I mean, what gets you excited over the next five to ten years, and where what might the future of um, Inc. look like? I mean, you've alluded to the change in strategies that may take place in terms of leaning into digital. But, you know, is there, do you have any views on that? Well, so I, I think, you know, Inc. remains a supporter of business owners in, in whatever fashion they need it, based on a core that we have of being able to provide information and being a trusted source and, and a source that recognizes them. So that can take a lot of different forms. But, but beyond that, I'm truly excited by how dynamic um, uh, I, I, I see businesses able to be how forward thinking uh, so many different business leaders are, how they're looking at solving problems in a way sometimes our government, which you would be the default sort of would think of the default solver of these problems is not. And it leaves me very optimistic in a way I am not by nature. Um, I think I think entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs have, have gotten us to where we are today because of their ideas and their resilience and their ability to be resourceful. And I think they're going to enable us to get to the next place in a really successful way as well. And I'm really excited to see that, really excited to, to re, you know, honored actually to, to recognize that and at Inc. be able to, to sort of talk to them and participate uh, with them and their success. Well, and it's, it's lent into a thought that I've often had, which is sometimes where, where is the most influence an individual can have? Um, for me until I think of a better idea to start or start up, connecting startups to angel investors, which is what I do by day, that's where I can have the most value to society at large is putting money where it would get locked up into the hands of people who've got great ideas. And similarly, it seems within your position of at Inc at the moment, it's like there's this amazing opportunity to 
share, spread information and really play your part in what the next five to 10 years look like at a really crucial time, you know, especially if you're talking about the next um, uh, roaring 20s, then, you know, this should be a big, a big decade. Yeah, I, it's, it, I, I hope, I, I think it will be, I, I hope it will be. And I'm excited to be in this place for it because I, I think, um, yeah, I think we're going to see some really exciting things. Uh, Scott, I'm aware I've taken up plenty of your time and you've got probably many important people to speak to and stuff to get on with, but I just want to say thank you so much for, for your time and for the interview. It was really, really fascinating. Um, my pleasure, Ed. Thank you so much for having me on. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, ed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.